brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin podcast where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to the wonderful Sally Vickers. Sally is a novelist whose works include Miss Garnet's Angel, The Other Side of You, The Cleaner of Chartres and the Sunday Times top 10 bestseller The Librarian. Her latest novel, The Gardener, was released in July and has been described by The Observer as a peon to green-fingered regeneration that is both rigorous and charming and by The Mail on Sunday as a quiet and intelligent hymn to the restorative power of nature. We're really delighted she could join us today. Sally, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. Good, good. We're both <laughs> glad. Um, well, in the book, we meet Hassi, the same age as me, as, as I've just told you before we started recording. Um, she's the protagonist. Hassie's the protagonist and her sister Margot. They've just moved to this big old house in the Welsh marches, which I hadn't heard of despite having a Welsh partner, following the death of their father. And it's got this big unkempt garden. I've just moved house. I'm surrounded by boxes. So the beginning, they get there, they've got all these boxes, they've got all these belongings. It's so difficult to, to go through some of them because they've got such emotional resonance. I really identified with Hassie in, in a lot of ways. And I know you wrote this book mostly in lockdown, mm-hmm. if not all in lockdown. Is is that right? Well, I'd started it just before lockdown, actually. And I was one of those people, I always feel a bit bad saying this, because I really benefited from lockdown. I had rented a cottage in the country in order to write a book, um, a cottage which had a very unkempt and wild and neglected garden. And I didn't choose it entirely for that reason, but serendipitously it was rather helpful. And then, of course, lockdown happened. And there I was, imprisoned in my leafy surrounds um, with nothing really but the countryside and the unkempt garden. And it gave me the opportunity to both physically work on a garden and write about somebody physically working on a garden which I think was a first, really, in writing a book, that the subject I was writing about was so very close to hand, and I was so personally involved in it. And, of course, in that process, a lot of my own childhood experiences of gardening and later experiences of gardening all came up. I think, as people who garden will agree, when you're digging and planting and, you know, going about your business, it is a kind of meditation. I found a lot of memories where I was digging up a lot of memories. And would you normally have done that much gardening on a day-to-day basis or were you doing it more intensely because you had this unkempt garden to tend to? Well, I, I hadn't had a house with a garden for some time. So it was really fortuitous that I had that experience. Um, and as I say, I was one of those people who struck lucky with the lockdown. I mean, I know so many people didn't, I feel bad saying this, but it was a rather unusual experience. And I think it made the book, I won't say it was easy to write because there were there were humps in it. There are always humps, but it gave it a special kind of organic quality so that as I worked on the garden and I worked on the book side by side, the thing in a way grew of its own accord. I mean, that often happens with my books. I don't plan ever. But I think this more than most had its own kind of organic growth, as it were, like something I had planted in my own 
the soil of my own unconscious. Was the cottage in the same place that the the novels set? No, sadly it wasn't. Um, I did live on the Welsh marches, so I do know that area, and it's an area that I've always been drawn to and I have always planned to write about. I explored the area a great deal, and there are many, many ancient sites that are really pre-Christian, pre-Roman even, which go back to the pagan times. And I've always had it, I've got a thing which I call the lumber room in my mind, where I sort of stack ideas that, you know, come up and I don't quite know where I'm going to put them. And in my lumber room was this idea I would write about the Welsh marches and its very ancient history. So I knew I was going to set the book there before lockdown. And then, of course, lockdown happened. So I had to stay in my Wiltshire garden. Uh, But luckily, Wiltshire has many of the same qualities of that particular area. It's also very ancient. It's the site of Avebury and Stonehenge. The resonance was there. And in between the lockdowns, I was able to go back. Uh, I always like to be in an area I'm writing about when I'm actually writing about it. So although I knew the area very well already, I did go back between the lockdowns and just went to look at the various ancient sites, and in particular the holy wells that feature at the, I suppose you might say, the heart of the book, because the heart of the book isn't exactly the garden. It's more the whole environment in which the garden is set. For me, there's a a feeling of... um well, a feeling of silence being a big theme to me and almost giving over to ancient rites and fate and almost that that's kind of the cup that the story lies in is this realisation, I suppose, that we can't really control things and that some things can be left vague. I I had this feeling at the end of, of real satisfaction about the fact that it was okay for the love affair that Hassie's reflecting on throughout it and has such pain about it's okay for for his reasons for doing certain things, I don't want to give too much away, to be left vague in her mind. I really, really loved that, that acceptance. Actually, that's okay. That really thrills me, frankly, because I had a bit of pressure from my editor who said, oh, you know, surely he's gone off with somebody else. And I said, no, look, that's a cliché. Sometimes things just don't work out and people themselves don't quite know why. Yes, And I very much wanted that to be part of what's happened. She doesn't know why, when he's in a position to come to her, having declared his love for her, he never comes. And I wanted to leave it that she never discovers this because I think there are so many um, aspects of real lived life where we don't quite know why things have happened and we can't always ever know another person. It's one of my big themes, actually, in all my books that... We never really know other people. And also we don't really know ourselves because as he finds having grieved so much and lost so much through her grief over this love affair that in the end she doesn't care either. Yeah. And I'm very happy that you responded to that because I wanted very much to get away from the cliché of the love affair and also the cliché of the adulterous man who's a bastard. He's not a bastard. He's just, like many of us, he doesn't really know his own mind. Yes, it's not necessarily that he knew why he didn't come back and didn't tell her. 
he probably didn't know either. And that is real. And yeah, it, it just made me love her even more. I wanted to suggest, and you've touched on it rather beautifully, actually, with your notion of the cusp and the silence and the acceptance, that it was it's really about Hassie coming to terms with what she can't control and what she doesn't know. We don't really know how far we can go in any of our um, desires and our passions and what may come up against us to, to thwart them or make us take a different direction. The lockdown where we were all, as it were, held against our own desires and wishes in a particular situation encouraged me to think about how that can sometimes be a point of growth if we allow it to happen. Mm. Because I guess there's always something that can grow like green shoots coming through a crack, but you have to allow it yes. to happen and that's difficult. It can be difficult. Um, and I do think that actually environment does help. I think she is unquestionably helped by the sort of layers of history and mystery of that particular environment she finds herself in. I'm, I'm very susceptible to environment myself. So there's a bit of me in there too. Um, I very often write about places in the world that are so-called thin places where there is, if you like, a kind of collective atmosphere that's arisen over historical periods and many, many people finding something special and unusual about the place. So I think I gave that particular quality to, to my principal character. There are also, many of them are working through trauma. You know, Murat, is that how you say his name? Yes. Yeah, so yes. Murat has his own trauma. He's not only come from another country, but he's had a relationship breakdown and is on his own, very mm. poor. He takes a plunge by going and saying, I don't know anything about gardening, but I'm open to learning. All of them grow. And, yeah. Yes, I think Margot was in some ways one of my favourite characters because she's, I present her the, the book is narrated by Hassi, it's perhaps worth saying that. So we get a view of the world that she's in through Hassi's consciousness, which, like every consciousness, has its own bias. With hindsight, you understand she's learnt something through the experiences that are described chronologically in time. But as she describes them chronologically, she tries to convey also, uh, and I try to convey to the reader, we all come in, um, into adult life with a lot of prejudices which have been cemented by our background and our position in our family and our parental relationships and our education and so on and so forth. And what Hazzy has to learn, and Margot to a lesser extent, is that they have constructed an image of each other which is not, in fact, whollier in line with the reality of the other person. In particular, there's something about Margot's life that Hassie has never understood and only comes out as they get closer and as the book progresses, which explains a great deal about the way Margot is as she is. And that changes the way that you act, doesn't it, when you have that realisation about someone else? When you continue in those patterns, it's often because you go, oh, you're the one who always does this, therefore I'm the one who always does that. Then when you, when you realise, you go, oh, well then... Oh, that changes my position too. Yes, and it's very true in families, as I'm sure you know, that, you know, we do, whether we like it or not, get, get saddled with a certain kind of, you know, reputation. She's the lazy one, she's the clever one, she's the beautiful one, you know, she's the careless one. It, it, there's an opening out for both Margot and Hassie, I hope, 
in the book? There certainly is. We ask you to bring in objects. We yes. ask everyone who comes in to bring in objects or virtual objects or memories. Um, the first thing we've asked you to bring in, as it were, is somewhere you were happy. Where is that? Well, I had a bit of a toss-up here, actually. Um, it's two ancient places. Um, one's the Pantheon in Rome, which, for my money, is one of the most beautiful buildings in the whole world. It's an extraordinary building, a Roman building, with um, a hole in the roof. And I was there once when it was snowing, and it snowed through the hole in the dome of the ceiling onto the marble floor below, and it's extraordinarily beautiful. But the place that won out, actually, is Delphi, um, the site of the Delphic Oracle, the Oracle of Apollo. And again, that features in one of my books, Where Three Roads Meet, which is the site where Oedipus meets his father and kills him in the legend which we have from the play by Sophocles, I've been there many, many times, and it's a place of extraordinary mystery, strangeness. The very first time I went there, you could still actually go into the Temple of Apollo. Nowadays, it's all fenced off, so it's not quite so numinous. I rather miss those ancient gods, uh, Greek gods, because they seem to me to exemplify aspects of the human psyche uh, in an objective form. And... I think it's very interesting that the Greeks did have that range of, of, of different divinities and in a way I think it's a pity we don't have them now. Let's move on to the next thing that you've brought in to talk about and that's something that changed you. Well, I, I, I suppose I would have to say psychoanalysis changed me. I don't think it radically changed me. I think what it did is what I was talking about with respect to my characters is that it revealed to me those things that I've been carrying around as protective devices um, to ward off change, to ward off disappointment, to ward off criticism, probably, um, which we all of us carry around to a greater or lesser extent. It's a kind of armour, I think. And I've actually had three analyses in the course of, of my life, one before I trained, one during training, and one subsequently the one subsequently was after a, a rather traumatic divorce and when I was not at all well and I felt I needed to go back and have a look at why that had happened to me. Um, I would have to say that. I don't say that psychoanalysis is the right thing for everybody. I don't think it is at all. I often say it's a bit like music or drama. You know, some people like that, some people don't. For me, it was extremely useful, and of course it led to my own training and to become a psychoanalyst, for which I'm extremely grateful, because that was a brilliant training for becoming a novelist. Not least because you learn, as a psychoanalyst, to find qualities within yourself that you may not have known you had in order to communicate better with the people who come to you with their particular story or their particular distress. And I found it very useful to find um, aspects of myself that would enable a closer communion with those people in order to both understand them better and also to make them feel better understood. 
But having said that, I think a more radical thing that's changed me is having grandchildren, which I would have to be a bit careful because I've got children and they may feel a bit miffed. <laughs> well, the grandchildren wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the children, so I suppose. <laughs> it's true. I love my two sons deeply. But I will have to say that the joys of being a grandparent far outstrip <laughs> the joys of being a parent. Because I was a very, very young parent. Um, the boy's father used to say, we're practising birth control. We haven't quite got the hang of it yet. <laughs> they, were, they were both born. When he was a PhD student, we hadn't been, and we had to go and live with my parents, which was tricky. And we were desperately poor, very young, and... Of course, I was incredibly anxious with all of that, as well as, I think, also you know, having the benefits of being very young. So when it came around to the grandchildren, I was able to really enjoy myself. And I do love children. I have a huge affection for children. I'm really sorry I only had two of my own. As my eldest grandchild, my elder granddaughter, always says, you're a baby snatcher, Sal, because whenever I see a baby, I... <laughs> I melt. And the whole experience, I mean, they have been such a wonderful learning curve for me because, you know, I've I've learned so many, many different things through watching them and discovering their unique takes on life and particular interests, which are not necessarily my own. I believe that love, like everything else, is something that improves with practice. That's what Miss Foote says as well, isn't it? Well, there's quite a lot of me in Miss Foote, I have to confess. She's not me. I've had a very different history, and her character's not entirely mine. I think she's crustier than I am, um, sharper than I am. And I think with practice, you do get better at loving. I don't mean I love my grandchildren more than I love my sons, but I think I maybe love them better. Mm -hmm. Do you think partly the children... Well, not generally, children are more open. They don't yet have cynicism, generally. And perhaps even the fact that children are more likely to see ghosts, and I think they might be closer to those other worlds in a way. Do you agree? Absolutely agree. I mean, as Wordsworth said, trailing clouds of glory do we come from God that is our home. And I think children are very much closer to the unconscious. And it's the unconscious I'm really interested in. I mean, most children believe in fairies, not all. I had a son who definitely didn't, and interestingly, his son, my grandson, doesn't either. But one of the first things that my elder granddaughter ever wrote was, toys are real, fairies are real, grown-ups are silly. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 still, I still got it in her wonderfully ill-formed. <laughs> I thought that really said it all. Toys are real, fairies are real, grown-ups are silly. That's Presumably. everything. That's everything you need to know. I know. And I so loved her for that. And I think that it's that. I think it's that. It is their openness. I think only children who are not happy or well are cynical. It is their openness, it's their extraordinary curiosity, it's that wide-eyed look in which, you know, a baby will look at anything with absolute interest and focus. But also, I think they are closer to some essential mystery about life that, unfortunately, I think today's society in particular is in danger of losing 
sight of. There's a sort of disenchantment, a pervasive disenchantment about contemporary society. And I don't want to be a Jeremiah and say everything is awful because there are many great things about progress, medicine, the relative defeat of hunger and famine and so forth. But there's a, a, a process of disenchantment and it's relevant, I think, that nowadays it's only in children's books that you get real representations of other dimensions. I'm unusual in, in presenting them in my books. There's nearly always some other dimension in my books. And I get chastised for it. There are critics who absolutely loathe it. But I, I think those elements um, have traditionally always been recognised by human societies. I think that we have, there were images created for them, be it angels or fairies or spirits or gods, for states of being that don't necessarily have a tangible form. I'm not suggesting they have a tangible material form, but have been consistently recognised by societies really since the beginning of of time, since humans gathered together and formed communities and societies. And I think it's quite telling that, as I say, only nowadays, you, get, you only nowadays get it really in children's literature. Very, very few people trespass in that area, and it's a brave writer that does it. Well, let's move on to your final object, and this is a song that moves you. <laughs> well, I suppose it has to be down by the Sally Gardens because um, that is why I am called Sally and why the name is spelt S-A-L-L-E-Y. It's from a poem by W.B. Yeats. The Sally Gardens are willow gardens. Sally's in Irish are willows, and it comes from the Latin, Salix, Salicus, fourth feminine. I confided to you that I failed my Latin A-level, but I do remember <laughs> that Salix is fourth feminine. And my father was a great lover of Yeats, great lover of poetry. I owe him a lot for that. He was also a great Republican. Uh, <clears throat> and I grew up hearing about the history of Ireland. We drove around Ireland and I would hear the history of the Black and Tans at a very young age. My mother, my father was tone deaf, which was a disappointment to my mother. She loved music and she loved the Benjamin Britten rendering of that song. And so they chose that name for me. And for quite a lot of my early childhood, I was known as Sally Gardens. And my godmother, who was the first person who taught me to garden, we went to live with her when my father lost his job when I was very young and we went to live with her. She didn't have children, but she had a garden and I became her kind of adoptive child and she taught me to garden. And whenever she wrote to me, she always addressed the letters to Miss Sally gardens so it would be difficult for me not to choose that song for me such a big theme of the book is silence in so many ways the silence of the stars and also companionable silence there's a bit where she's sitting with miss foot quite near the end and she says we fell into silence do you think you can ever truly be comfortable with someone unless you can fall into silence with them that's a very very good question and um I think you're right. I think the essence of real companionship is the ability to be silent with another person. The great psychologist Donald Winnicott, who I am an immense fan of, famously talks about children 
being alone with a loving parent. So the parent is there to enable the child to be alone. And I think that children who've had that experience, and sadly not all children do, will grow up to become adults who are able to have companionable silence. Of course, if you work as an analyst or a therapist, there is a great deal of silence. So you learn to trust the silence and you learn to feel quite distinct levels of silence and qualities of silence. Sometimes a silence, very often a silence, is an agitated silence or an embarrassed silence or a fearful silence. It's a moment of great joy and pleasure when a person begins to feel comfortable with you when they're silent. And I think that I'm, I'm terribly pleased you've noticed it. I also, you probably notice, have periods of silence in the structure of the book. There's a notable silence between parts two and three, um, where there's a gap and there's a deliberate gap. I mean, I suppose a gap in a work of literature is a literate version of a silence. And in that gap, something is generated. And again, I don't say exactly what it is, though you can, I think, discover what it is if you think about what's happened before and what the consequences of that gap are. But I like gaps and I like silences. And I think, again, we live in a, a society which is noise-ridden. There's a great deal of noise. I mean, I'm somebody who can't bear to have the radio on in the morning. And if I go to stay with my children, they always have the radio on in the morning and I, I want to tell them to turn it off. I mean, I don't because it's not my place. But, you know, I like to move into the day in silence. And I always write in the early morning when it's quiet, if possible. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that because the way Hassie, well, the way she wakes, she often says, like, the thought of tea is the thing that drags her from bed, which I really identify with, although I have two young children, so they often drag me from bed. But that's my natural state, I think. Are you similar in that way? Oh, very similar. I mean, one of the things I think about children is I feel so sorry for them. They're always being told to hurry up. It's not their fault and it's not the parents' fault. It's that, you know, they have to get to school, the parents have to get to work. I mean, it's one of the great luxuries, actually. My children are grown up and my responsibilities for my grandchildren are limited, as they always are with grandchildren. And so I have control of my own time. But a great deal of life is controlled, I think, by the need to conform to a time scheme and a schedule which is not necessarily one's natural one. So when you were writing when your children were younger... Did you find it more difficult to carve out that time because you couldn't necessarily... I didn't. Miss Garnet's Angel was my first novel. Yeah. I was 50 when I wrote it. So, I mean, I, I, I didn't because I was, for a lot of my children's uh, life, I was a single parent. And, you know, the business of supporting them it wasn't easy. And I didn't have the kind of space to think and, well, not think, because I don't think I think when I write, but the thinking has to have been done already and digested, but reflect and meditate. I couldn't actually write unless I had long periods of reflection and meditation. Did I, you have ideas and just think, I'll have to put them away for now? I don't think I thought I'll have to put them away for now. I think I just did put them away for now. I and mean, I don't think I was particularly resentful about it. I mean, I had a 
very busy career as a psychoanalyst, um, as well as working in the NHS as a psychotherapist in a number of capacities. So I had a very active professional life, which was absorbing. Mm. And I think anyone who's worked in the caring industries will agree with this, that it is a huge responsibility. Um, I worked with quite a lot of very traumatised people, and that took its own toll. And it was only when I wrote Miss Garnet's Angel that I gave up that particular kind of work. Partly because I was worried that people would think I was um, using their lives and their disappointments, unhappinesses and traumas as material, which I never would have done and never did. But I thought I could see that could be an anxiety. But also because I needed those periods of reflection, of lying fallow. I think this I, I'm keen on this notion of lying fallow, where you a farmer leaves a field to itself to recover its own sources of fertility and generative power and I, I am somebody who needs a lot of downtime and when you when you go and look at the ancient places and you know you said you had a glass of wine and you were are those periods lying fallow or that, do they feel more active do you feel like you, you absorb everything and then you'll go to work or would you go back and write that night no I, I almost everything I've written about has been something that's been percolating through my mind for many many years so Dartmoor, which I've written about, Delphi, which I've written about, Rome, Venice, the Welsh marches, these are all places that I know very, very well. And I never think, oh, you know, I would like to write about, um, I don't know, Iceland and then go to Iceland and turn it into a book. Almost everything I write about in terms of place, and I'm very, very fussy about place, I have to know it really well. And I will always go back while I'm writing about a particular place and, and check everything. So there was a real correlation for me, how the garden grows overnight. So the things that happen in the garden overnight, Hassie will go to bed and then the garden carries on working in the night because things don't stop growing. What I love is when she wakes up and she notices these things and she can have a surprise. She can go, oh, there's a plant I didn't know was there. And I wondered if for you there's a correlation between when you're doing the work on a book and you leave it for a couple of days, then go back to it, that the subconscious has carried on problem-solving so that when you come back to it... It's exactly like that. That's really beautifully observed. And I think that's why the garden is such a fertile image, because it is like our unconscious, which, you know, it's an old saying, sleep on it. But I used to say that to my clients, sleep on it. And, you know, very often a dream... I don't say I don't say dreams are the answers to everything, but they will often make a, a different pattern of a problem or a different pattern of something one's thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I think you're absolutely right that the way that a garden carries on when we're not necessarily attending to it is very much like the human consciousness, which carries on whether we are conscious or not. I mean. Our consciousness is really a very, very limited part of our whole kingdom of our consciousness. I mean, I'm very interested in the work of Ian McGilchrist, who has become quite a good friend, who's written a wonderful two-volume book called The Matter with Things. And his theory is that everything is conscious. Oh, really? I mean, the 
as he says, you know, the mountain behind his house, as he puts it wittily, doesn't necessarily go shopping at Sainsbury's or have a beer in the evening. It doesn't mean it's not conscious. It's a, it's a really interesting and well-developed and utterly unnutty and uncranky theory. And I feel that very, very much. I think consciousness is a... It's, it, well, it's known to be one of the big questions of philosophers and psychologists and physicists and is, remains unsolved. And it's something I feel happens at all kinds of levels, both within us but also within the world about us. And I think that's partly probably why these historical places that have attracted people throughout the years and throughout the centuries have such power because... I suspect they are pockets of heightened consciousness. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's It's been wonderful. And thank you too for listening wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. You can leave us a review and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Sally's work, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time. <laughs>